Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. morning church. Our reading this morning is from Exodus 3 verse 1 to 22. At the end of the reading I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was burning, was on, was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When, Moses, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the, of the Egyptians and to bring them up into, uh, bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I am, that is I, that is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The, elder, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards these toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you this morning. If you are just joining us, we're happy that you have come. My name is Emmanuel. I serve on the leadership team. I serve on the preaching team as well. We're glad that you've made out the time to join us this morning. Um, so the name Frank Donga. Okay, I can tell that even just by mentioning that name, many of us know who that is. If you, if you do not know who that is, Frank Donga is... Um, a comedic personality. He's not a real person, but he's a comedic personality that actually specializes in showing, I don't even know how to describe it, showing the craziness of people um, in, in, in situations in Nigeria. And particularly one of the places where Frank Donga, you know, is really good in pointing out some of the flaws in our society is in interviews. And interviews, job interviews, or where people sort of um, have questions to answer. And so the latest one, he has gone for a job interview, and actually what happened is that he wasn't really that good. But they thought, oh, let's take a chance on this guy. Let's help him. Let's, you know, give him this job. And so he's having this conversation with the, um, assumably the, the, HR, the HR manager who is employing him. And so the person tells him, um, well, you didn't really do well on that interview, but we thought we should take a chance on you. We thought we should employ him. And so we're going to give you the offer letter, which is a very you know, juicy, shows a really juicy salary. And we're going to give you an official car, a 2012 Mercedes-Benz. And so the guy is very, very happy. And so the person tells him, I'm coming. Let me go and get the letter. And so as the person goes away, you know, very overjay somebody, he calls his babe, brings out his phone and calls his babe, babe, I've landed the job, I've gotten the job. And in fact, they even promised me this very juicy salary, and they promised me official car, 2012 Mercedes-Benz. And that reply is, eh? 2012 
We're in 2022. Who uses 2012 Mercedes-Benz in 2022? That is how all these Lagos people do. Tell them that you can't take 2012. I was like, if they had even promised you like Toyota or something, but Benz 2012, no agree for them. Oh. And so the guy says, hey, okay, 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 ah, very sharp somebody. And so he, he listens. And so the person comes back now with the um, offer letter and then he's having a conversation. And so the person was giving us say, oh God, wait, wait. So now he's, he's now frowning his face. Say, I'm, I'm too good for this. I can't, 2012 Mercedes Benz, I cannot take it. It's, 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 too, it's too below me. This is 2022, 10 years after. 2012 Benz. So the man was not even trying to, you know, like, ah, wait first now, take the offer letter first, see what's inside. He said, no, you must give me another car. So the guy says, oh, you want another car? Say, yes. Okay. Let's go outside and go to one of the you know, nearby car lots and go and choose another car. I said, so that one is happy, he's rejoicing. Of course, as they get outside, that one just throws him outside and closes the gates and walks back inside. <laughs> We're all familiar with interviews that don't go well. Whether from, if we are honest, from personal experience or from those of us that work you know, in hiring positions, from people that we've actually interviewed, that this person just bungled this thing. This person just messed this thing up. And so again, you know, part of this sermon thing is there's also some therapy there and confession session. So I do have my own Frank Donga story. And so in 2016, at this time I finished university, finished my master's. I had worked a little bit with um, an international NGO that you know, if you're familiar with the saying there, international NGOs that really help to monitor some United Nations conventions. And so I gained that experience. And so I came back to Nigeria with what was a good CV. And I was sure that, of course, who will hire me? Very desirable somebody like that. Why would they not hire me? And so I applied to what at the time I thought was, and a lot of people said was the premier NGO. So I applied and then they sent, you know, I sent my um, CV. And then the ED, the executive director, reached out to me. Of course, she would reach out to me. <laughs> and then she said that, actually, we don't, we're not even hiring people right now. But I saw your CV, and I wanted to have a conversation with you. In my mind, I was like, of course, you're going to have a conversation with me. So we said this day, um, first of all, at the time, because it was, it was not where I was, it was, a, it was a virtual interview. And so she calls in. I wasn't ready, I wasn't, my background was just everywhere. So I just sat down. My wife is looking because she just heard this story for the first time. I'm just confessing for the first time. And so I sat down and then the interview seems to be going well until she asked this question. Tell me who you are. Tell me, tell me, tell me something about yourself that I don't know. And so at this point, like I just had, like, you know, when there's blockage in your memory, <laughs> just like, so I now started, you know, I now started saying all the things in my CV. I was born in this, I schooled in this place, I went to this place, I did this. You could see her countenance, it just dropped. And she said these words, 
that you are all familiar with. She said, we will get back to you. <laughs> of course, they never go back to me. And I never told anybody. I just said, they will get back to me. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody I bungled the interview. But here's the thing. When she asked, tell me about yourself, she wasn't saying, tell me something that is already in your CV. She was asking, what makes you tick? Who are you as a person? We want to hire this person. In fact, we don't have any position. Why should I hire you right now? Yes, I've seen your CV. I've seen your experience. And there are people in our organization that don't have this experience. But what are you going to add to our organization if I hire you now? Tell me about yourself. What is your identity? And the truth, friends, is that often we find ourselves in interviews. Obviously, not job interviews. But we find ourselves in interviews where people have heard all these things we've said about Jesus. They've heard all these things that we've said about what he has done in our life. And they're asking, okay, so tell me about yourself. Tell me something I don't already know. And like it happened to me, like it happened to Frank Dogan, it's happened to a couple of us here in this room. There's just a blockage. There's just, we really don't know why, because there's a confusion about our identity. You see, when Jesus was preparing to leave the earth, in John chapter 20, verse 22, he says this was, he says, he showed them his sides, he showed them his hands, and then in verse 21, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Oh yeah, so what Jesus does to us is he changes us, he transforms us. He makes sinners saints. He makes those who were outcasts now adopted as his children. He brings us into his family, but he actually does one more thing. He makes us his sent ones. And oftentimes there's a gap between what we are experiencing and what people are asking of us because there's a confusion about our identity. We actually don't know who we are. So we've designed this series by God's grace to change that story, to sort of bring God's intervention to clarify our identity so that we can become God's people and be sent out in all the places that he has called us to. And I pray that as we go through this series, as we go through today's sermon, that God will bring about that clarity. God will remove that confusion. And God will give us a superb, supernatural boost that will drive us to all the places that God has sent us to in Jesus' name. Can I hear a louder amen? Amen. And so we've titled the series, The Sent Ones. And I like this proverb in Yoruba language that says something like this. It says that we don't fear the person that we are sent to. We fear the person who sends us. And oftentimes, for many of us, <laughs> you've had those conversations where it's like, I really don't know what to say. I really don't know what to do. God is the God of the fearful ones. In fact, as we look at this passage today, what we'll see today is that the fearless God sends his fearful ones with a free message. And I pray that as we also go through today's sermon, that God will bring about that clarity as well. God will bring about that boldness in Jesus' name. So the sermon is titled, God of the Fearful. God of the Fearful. And the first thing we see here is the question of the fearful ones. The question of the fearful ones. So we read, off we read chapter 3 for us of Exodus. But always, when you come into a story, midway, there's always a background. It's sort of like if you, some of you have gone to watch Love and Thunder, the latest Avengers movie, which, by the way, I really hate. 
Um, but I'm, I'm happy because I didn't pay for it. Somebody else paid for it. But there's always a backstory. The way that story only makes sense is if you knew what had happened in the earlier installations of the Thor or Avengers series, right? And it's the same thing with Exodus chapter 3 that we get into. What happens, as we've seen here, is that the children of Israel had come from the land of Canaan. They had left the land of Canaan and now entered Egypt because there was famine in the land of Canaan. And it so happened that God had made one of their own sons, sons of the soil, like we say in Nigeria, sons of the soil, has now become the prime minister in Egypt. And so because of Egypt, he's able to pressure the government and say, increase the quota of Israelis, Israelites that are entering the land of Egypt. And so he brings his family over. Everybody comes into this place and they begin to flourish. But you see, as always happens when you have difficult times, a new government comes up and then they change the policy. Sort of what Nigeria did in the 1980s, when things were getting tough. They say, ah, blame the foreigners. And so we, we did, Ghana must go. And the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, was actually going to do a, an Israel must go philosophy and, and policy. But actually someone said to him, why do Israel must go? Why not Israel must stay? Israel must stay so that they can become our slaves. So that all the things that we are not going to be able to do, they can actually do those things. And so they institute this policy where the Israelites become the slaves who are then serving the Egyptians and doing all the sort of menial work and task of building Egypt. The Egyptians were flexing. The Israelites were working. But things actually get tougher because the Pharaoh now decides, no, 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 these Israelites, they are becoming too many. Let's reduce them. And so he decides that he's going to um, um, kill all the male child, children, all the male children of the Israelites. But God in his kindness spares one of them, a baby named Moses. But God, again, in his own divine sense of humor, he then takes that Israelite child who Pharaoh had said should be killed to grow up in Pharaoh's household. If you know the story, Pharaoh's daughter adopts this boy and brings him into the palace and raises him up there. But then Moses, at some point, then begins to hear from whatever source that, no, this is actually your destiny. Your God has called you to free his people. And so Moses goes before he's sent, and Moses kills somebody. And then the Pharaoh hears it, and Pharaoh is going to go after him, but Moses jackpot. He ran away. But, you know, as often happens when you jackpot, like if you're a professor, you know, in your 50s or 60s, there's really nowhere for you to work again, so you become you know, maybe a driver or something, which is not bad, but it's not what you were doing before. But then ah, there's peace of mind. I don't have to worry about NEPA. I don't have to worry about rent. I don't have to worry about all of these things. So Moses becomes a shepherd when he japa. Obviously, several steps down on the ladder, the social ladder, from being a prince in the house of Pharaoh. But now he's, he's okay. He's fine. And we come to chapter 3 where Moses thinks this is just another day in my life. This is just a regular day. I'm just going to go around doing what I normally do. Drive this ship around. No problem. No wala. I've left all of Egypt behind me. And then he encounters God. And this is interesting, friends, because it is in the ordinariness of his day in the regularity of his itinerary, in all the things that he had sort of planned out for himself, that he encounters God. In verse 3, we are told that he sees a strange sight. He sees the bush burning, and he sees these things like, let me turn aside and go and look. 
And already here, God is already saying something to us, you see, friends. Because many of us will say, I don't experience God. Yes, I remember that time I had a retreat. I, I, I remember that time that I, I sort of moved away. You know, I went to this secluded place and prayed for many days. That was when I experienced God. But I do experience God again now. And God is saying to us through the story of Moses that part of the reason why we don't experience God is because we are not sensitive to what God is doing around us. You see, it's very interesting in verse 1 of the passage that we are told that Moses went into the wilderness. But actually, it was into the far side of the wilderness. Moses left a lot of things behind. He left his comfort. He left the regularity of all the things that he was used to. And he went into the far side of the wilderness. And that was where he encountered God. Moses left the distraction of his home. Moses left the comfort of his home. And that was how he was able to meet with God. There's a poem that stuck with me so much from when we were preparing for Waika. Some of you may know the poem. It's called The World is Too Much with Us by William Wordsworth. And the opening line says, it says, The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away. A solid bond. The world is too much with us. And for many of you, I'm not judging you. I'm very much in that situation as well. You, you come from a very tired day. You've, you've spent a lot. You, you're just expended. People have stretched you out in the office. And then you're coming back. There's traffic. You're just like, please, I pray the kids are asleep. I pray my wife is not going to come out. I want to talk about something. I just want to be alone. And so you're like, well, I can't read. I don't want to talk to anybody. Let me just watch 15 minutes of Netflix, just to relax. Then you watch 15 minutes, but somehow the episode is so good. I just feel like, let's just finish this first episode. Tomorrow, I will, it's just for five minutes. It's, just, it's good to relax. Then, ah, there's a cliffhanger at the end of that first episode. They're like, man, let's, let's just finish this season. Let's just finish this season because, like, this thing is so good. Like, there's even, there's just the next, the next one week, I'll just spend this. Let's just finish this thing. And now you've watched 13 episodes. You've not done your devotion. You've not spent time with your family. You've not done anything. Just spend time watching this 13 every, every day for the last one week. You'll be watching this thing. But then there's, this really nice suspense at the end of the 13th episode. Whoa! There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not going to judge me. Let's just finish this, you know, let's just finish this series. That's why you watch six um, seasons of Downton Abbey. And there's a later survival. <laughs> the world is too much with us. You see, friends, when Moses left and went to the far side of wilderness, he wasn't running away from things that were bad. What God had designed was that he was leaving things that were good so that he could meet something better. And when we pursue all these things, when we allow these things to distract us, what happens is that we are just with the good things. We actually never experience something better. 
the world is too much with us. And it's interesting that it is in verse 4. When we come to verse 4, it tells us that when God saw that Moses had stepped aside, that was when God now came out and encountered him. The world is too much with us. Do you want to see God? Do you want to have an encounter with God? Do you want to know more of God? Keep the good distractions away. Keep the good friends away. Keep the good conversations away. Seek out something better. But you see, friends, the good news in this passage is not that Moses went out looking for God. No, 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 that's not the good news. The good news in this passage is that God was looking for Moses. Moses thought it was just an ordinary day, just a regular day. Let me just drive this sheep into the wilderness. And if I'm Moses at this point, because at this point, Moses is 80 years old. And what would have happened? He spent 40 years with this sheep. He knows them by name. Millie, don't go there. He's probably even acting a drama in his head. He's probably even reciting something in, in, in his head. He's, he's told them the story of his life again and again and again. And the sheep are wondering, oh my God, for the thousandth time, I'm going to hear this story again. But actually, Moses is doing his own thing, but it is God who comes to seek out Moses. And friends, this is a story of the Bible that God comes to seek us out. It is not that we are the ones looking for God. It is not that we are the ones sort of seeking out how we can approach God. No, no, actually it is that God comes to seek us out. God saves sinners. God takes the initiative to come to those of us who didn't want to have anything to do with him, who were doing our own thing and going around and having our own day. God comes for us. Isn't that good news, friends? You can never walk your way up to God. God must come down to meet us. And so in verse 5 to 6, God introduces himself to Moses. And then in verse 7 to 8, God tells Moses, I have seen the suffering of these people. In fact, I have seen this so much. In verse 8, God says to them, I have now come down. This thing has pained me. I have come down now to rescue them. God comes. God takes the initiative. God runs after us. And if I'm Moses at this point, like Moses is really happy because it's like, wow, thank God. At least those things I did, those 40 years ago, was it in vain? God is now going to do something about it. But actually, there's a twist in the story in verse 10. In verse 8, God says, I have come to rescue them. In verse 10, God now says, so now go. And Moses is like, eh, um, where's the cutting board? Again, let me clean my ear to remove the wax. God, I thought you said you were going to come and rescue them. What's my own? What's my business? I didn't want to have anything to do with this thing. God, go and do your thing. But God actually says, no, no, no. I have come to rescue them. So now go. God sends Moses. And as you can imagine, Moses is a bit confused because he's um, like, God, which is it? Make up your mind. Are you the one rescuing them or am I the one rescuing them? And so in verse 11, he asks God this question. He says, "Um, so who am I? that should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And at the face of it, it looks like a very, you know, good question. Like, a, a humble question, in fact, like, oh God, who am I? Who am I that you're thinking about me like this? But you know, do you know, sometimes we masquerade our humble questions, our fearful questions with humility. That's what Moses was doing here. We know Moses was afraid because of the answer that God gives to him in verse 12. God says to him, 
I will be with you. Moses asked God, who am I? God says, I will be with you. In other words, it is not so much about who you are. It is about who is with you. I think sometimes this is part of the problem when we come to mission, when we come to speaking to other people about Jesus, there's a confusion about who we are. God, who am I that I should do this? Who am I that I should talk to this person? Who am I that I should say this in this place? Ah, God, they will, they will embarrass me. They will tear me to pieces. And God says, I will be with you. And that's a strange response because I would have thought God would ginger Moses. Moses, you are the man. Moses, you are the guy. Moses, you can't do this. I made you for this, Moses. This whole sermon is about Samuel. <laughs> so I made you for this, Moses. And you have thought that God is pumping him up. God is going to do a lot of ginger. Which is how I, you know, sort of relate to my son. Um, so we had noticed that this guy doesn't like finishing things. You eat food, you won't finish it. He will start something. He will start watching cartoon. He won't finish it. This is, I don't like this, man. This is, not, this is not the son. So I called him one day. I said to him, he didn't finish it. So I said, JD. This is me thinking, like, I, this is my boy. I'm going to psych him. JD, I believe in you. You are my boy. I believe in you. You are not a quitter. You are a finisher. You can do this. You are not a quitter. You are a finisher. And the guy looks at me. And then he says, but daddy, I'm a quitter. <laughs> at that point, I just like, whoa, 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 go and finish your food job. <laughs> And that's the problem. We're just pumping people up, right? You pump and pump and pump, but actually it doesn't change anything about the person. God doesn't tell Moses, you got this. God says, I will be with you. And maybe there are some of us who are afraid like that. We, 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 we feel terror. Like, God, I don't know what to say. God, do you even know me? Do you know people you are sending me to? God says, I know that, and I will be with you. Let that encourage your heart this morning. I will be with you. But I think why Moses is asking, God, who am I, is really because of his past and his present. You see, what happened was that Moses was living in Egypt. He was living at the highest place. He was living in the palace of the king. Moses had tasted what it meant to be in power. And he had fallen from favor with power. And now he's an exile. He's, he's run away because there's a demand on his life. And, and Moses is like, God, don't you know all of that past? Don't you know some of the hurts because of what I tried to do in the past? Don't you know my failures? But I think it's also because of his presence, you see. Like I said, he's a shepherd. At least he's able to feed himself, but he's... It's like when we are leaving secondary school, you know, and, and, they, and they line up the people who are most likely to succeed. I think they should stop doing that thing. That thing is just bad. People who are most likely to succeed. And then you see these 10 guys, most likely to succeed. Your face was posted on the yearbook and everybody saw you. They gave you an award. They gave you everything. And then 10 years later, 
your startup has refused to start up. <laughs> it's like, God, I, I, I don't even have, like, God, like, can't you see where I am? I'm a shepherd, God, for crying out loud. And I think it's the same thing with us. And when we say, God, I can't do this, it's really because of our past and our present. It's like, God, I tried that one time and it didn't work out well. I tried that one time. In fact, I gave out tracks and what happened was that they asked me this question in front of all the people in my class and I didn't even know the answer. God, who am I? But sometimes also because of our presence, you see how you are wrestling and struggling to make it through in life. You see how you are even struggling your own work with Jesus and, and, and you're struggling and wrestling like, God, who am I? Can't you see my mess? Can't you see my brokenness? Can't you see this, God? And God says, I will be with you. Your qualification is not that you merit it. Your qualification is who is with you, God. And so God is the one who is able to see our past and see our present and know that those things don't touch on the future that he has for us. You see, we, we make predictions based on where we are coming from and where we are right now. We say, oh, because of my failures, because of all these struggles, because of all these things, I can't do this. But God sees that and says, yes, precisely because of all those things, you can do this. God says, I will be with you. And I think that is such a liberating thing, friends, even as we have this question on our hearts of who am I, because it takes the pressure off us to perform. It means that it's no longer about how articulate we are. It means that it is no longer about how much pressure we can put on people. Pastor Femi has told the story of when he was preaching to somebody and then the guy didn't answer. I say, ah, you won't answer, okay? You locked the door. Give your life to Christ now. You must give your life to Christ now, now, now. Otherwise, I don't think the guy still gave his life to Christ. Well, I remember myself, I was at a program and the guy who was our president of our youth fellowship at the time told me, make an altar call and invite people to come and meet Jesus. So we acted this powerful drama, which had some K-leg inside, but that's beside the point. And then I come out and I invite people. Nobody came out. Ah, you must come out to deal. <laughs> Uh, you must come out and give your life to Jesus today. And you are there. Five minutes. Nobody is answering. Ten minutes. Somebody must come and shout. It takes the pressure off us to perform. Why? I will be with you. God answers our question. Not by telling us how great we are. By telling us how great he is. But if I can just be more helpful... Even more helpful, let me give us five quick tips that help take away the fear that we experience when it comes to evangelism or sharing Jesus with other people. The first one is availability. And that's what we see in this passage. We see God come to um, Moses. And Moses just says, in verse 3, he says, God, here I am. I don't have any, I think it's verse 4, I don't, I don't have any goals, I don't have any agenda, I don't have anything. God, here I am. He surrendered to God. Here I am. Availability. God is not looking for those who have all of their theology sorted. God is not looking for those who have all of their ego in place. God is not looking for those who are confident. God is looking for those who are available. Here I am. 
But I think perhaps the most crucial ingredient is having an encounter with God. Having an encounter with God. If you follow the story of Moses again, what happened was that in chapter 2, Moses had gone out. Chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, we see Moses, he had run out. He had gone and he had done a lot of things for God. Or so he thought for God. He was trying to rescue God's people. And there, because he had, like they say in Yoruba, he ran faster than his maker. He ran into trouble. He employed means that God hadn't asked him to use. But then in verse 3, in chapter 3, we come to Moses and we see in verse 16 that this person who ran away, this person who had tried in his own strength to bring about deliverance is now somebody because he has met with God. God now sends him and says, go. The reason why our evangelism, our speaking to others about Jesus is so difficult is because we have not had an encounter with the one we are telling other people to encounter. Sometimes, friends, sometimes we struggle to do these things because we, are sort of, we think it's about us. We think it's about how articulate we are. We think it's about how gifted we are. We're trying all of these things in our own power and in our own strength, but actually all we need to do is to just have an encounter with God. Because you see, the way God brings about change is by people who have changed. The way God brings about people who encounter him is by people who have encountered him. And so if you haven't encountered Christ, how can you ask other people to encounter him? If you haven't been transformed by Christ, how can you ask other people to be transformed by him? Your availability, but also an encounter with this Christ. But it's also intriguing that there is curiosity as well. It's interesting that when we come to verses 1, 2, and 3, what Moses does, he's walking through life. He's walking through his day. And he sees this strange thing and he says, I will go over and look. And we see, friends, that the way that we can be effective in our evangelism and effective in the thing that God has called us to is people who are always looking at what is God doing around me. What is God doing that I may be missing out on? Who is God convicting? You hear somebody drop something as you are talking and you're like, I want to press that button a bit more. I want to find out a bit more to see if perhaps God is doing something and I can join God in what he's doing in this person's life. Curiosity. There's a story we are told in Acts chapter 8 where Philip encounters a, a government official, an Ethiopian government official, and the Holy Spirit tells him, go over and meet that person. And Philip doesn't say, hey, have you given your life to Christ? He says, I see you are reading something. Do you understand what you are reading? Curiosity. There are people in our lives that God is always working on per time. All we need to do is just partner with God and say, God, what is, what is it that you might be doing in this person's life that I can join in with you to do? Curiosity. So I talked about availability and encounter and curiosity. Another thing we see here that can help us as we evangelize or as we share the gospel with other people is simplicity. You see, when God sends Moses to go and meet the people of Israel, he doesn't tell them, go and give them a theology of suffering for the last 430 years. He just says to them, go and tell them I will deliver them. And part of the reason why we run into trouble is that we want to be who we are not, right? 
We want to, in these moments, this person, you have to get all the doctrines right. You have to get everything sorted. You have to know all of these things because that's the only way that you can make it to heaven or that's the only way that you can encounter Christ. And, and no, actually, it doesn't have to be that way. Just keep it simple. Christ loves you. God sees your mess. God sees all the things that you're encountering and he wants to rescue you. Keep it simple. You don't need to have everything dotted. You don't need to have everything crossed. Keep it simple. God says to him, go and tell them I will deliver them. Your availability, your encounter with Christ, your curiosity, your simplicity, but also relationships. Who does God send Moses to? The people of Israel. Why is it that we think that we can only be effective when we talk to people that we don't know? Many times God has given us relationships in our lives and we haven't even done anything with those relationships. And you're thinking about, oh, that person that you saw, that, that person that you saw, they have to tell them something. God has put people in our lives that we can share his gospel with. I was talking to two people yesterday and it struck me how the way they came to faith was because of the role their parents had played in their lives. And it wasn't even just like, oh, daddy is now going to teach us about the doctrine of election and he's going to share with us about the uh, Synod of Dots and how to read the Heidelberg Catechism and the Odo Salutis in this, our family devotion. No, no, no. What daddy and mommy just did was they read the Bible and prayed in the morning and in the evening. And they were there for the kids as they had questions along the way. It is amazing how many parents don't do this thing. And then several years down the line, the kids don't have any love for Jesus. And you're wondering why, how? How, how, how? I thought we were going to church together. No, because they want to see actually that this thing means something to you. They want to see that this gospel has transformed you before you're asking us to join along. So we can start from the sphere of our relationships. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you have siblings, right? Or maybe you are in a position of authority over those siblings. And many of us who are older here, this is how our families eventually became Christian. You were the first to give your life to Christ. And then you had this, you, this younger brother or sister who was in GS2 or whatever. And then you invited this person along to fellowship. And you spoke to them. And the person became a Christian. And then the person shared with another person. And then the person shared with another person. And before you knew it, all of your family became Christian relationships. You don't have to know a lot of things. Just be available. Have an encounter with Christ. Be curious. Keep it simple. And walk in the sphere of your relationships. Why? I will be with you. But the second thing we see in this passage is the identity of the fearless God. And so Moses thinks that he's in, who wants to be a millionaire with God? And he gets to ask all the questions. In fact, if you read chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4 verse 17, where this sort of episode ends, Moses is just peppering God with questions. God, who are you? God, I don't have this. God, I can't speak. God, I can't do this. And then he is eventually honest in chapter 4. And then he says, God, please send somebody else. <laughs> but he asked God another question in this passage. 
in chapter 3. <laughs> in verse 13, Moses says to God, Okay, God, let me give you an example. Let's say, for instance, I go to Israel and I say to them, God has asked me to rescue you. And they ask me his name. What will I tell them? In other words, God, okay, I asked you, who am I? Uh, God, who are you? And on the face of it, that seems like, why can I even be asking that question? Because God had introduced himself earlier. In verse 6, God had said, this is who I am. And Moses hears God and says, and he mentions the name God. And here God says, Moses feels the need to ask God, God, who are you? But you see, actually, it's not a bad question. It's a very good question. In fact, it's a very crucial question because actually the identity of the one who sends us has everything to do with how we go about the mission. The identity of the one who sends us affects the shape and the function of the mission. And so when Moses says to God, God, who are you? God knows, God feels the need to introduce himself because that is how the message can be successful. Oh, Moses, you are this fearful person. Guess what? I am the fearless person. And I'm going to introduce myself to you. And so God answers the question to Moses. In verse 14, God shows his self-sufficiency and he says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. In other words, you don't need to help me to accomplish this thing. You don't get to define who I am. I am who I am. God shows Moses in verse 14 that he's also very personal. And God tells Moses, he says, I have seen the problem of the Israelites. I have seen their trouble. I have seen their difficulty. And he's saying to Moses, God is the self-sufficient one. God is the personal one. But God is also the compassionate one. And we see this all throughout this episode in verse 7, in verse 8. God says, I have seen their trouble. I have heard their cry. I am concerned. We see a God who is not, like the Bible tells us later, who is not left untouched by the feelings of our infirmity. A God who very much feels what it is to live in a difficult, broken world where there's suffering and there's trouble and there's chaos and there's confusion all around. He says, I am with you, I have seen all that is going on. He's a compassionate God. But he's also a, a covenant-keeping God. In verse 15, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what God is doing there is to say, in fact, he goes on to say, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. In other words, God was saying, this commitment that I have to you, the people of Israel, is not just because of anything in you. It is because of me. It is because of me. And maybe you're not a Christian here. Can I tell you that the identity of our God has everything to do with the shape of the mission and the invitation that we are calling you to accept Christ. And you may say, oh, well, what about the Crusades? What about those things that happened in the past? Or even more recently, what about the missionaries who came to Africa and they helped with the colonial masters and they plundered us? And in some cases in South America, they even acted as spies. What do we say about all of those things? I would say, 
yes, those things are true, but those things were wrong. And those things were wrong because they are inconsistent with the character of the God who sends us out on mission. He's a God who is self-sufficient. He's a God who is personal. He's a God who is compassionate. But he's a God who is covenant-keeping. He loves unconditionally. And so there's this word called hesed in Hebrew. And in fact, in the book of Exodus, as we read the story along, God uses that to describe himself. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God says, this is who I am. I'm the covenant-keeping God. I'm the God who is abounding and steadfast in love. When he talks about God abounding and steadfast in love, what it means there is using the word he said, and it's not just like, I love you. I like your hair, you know, the way we throw love around. I love your jokes. I love the way you look. No, no, it is, this is a covenant-keeping God. In other words, God is here to stay regardless of the failures in your own life, regardless of the brokenness around you, regardless of the difficulties that you experience. I'm a God who is covenant-keeping. And if you know anything about the story of the people of Israel, it is that they were not lovable. It is like being stuck with somebody in an abusive relationship. And this person today... (laughs) Like a friend of mine who was in a relationship with somebody, today I love you, tomorrow we've broken up. Today I love you, tomorrow we've broken up. Today I love you, tomorrow we've broken up. And, and this is what the people of Israel were like. They were abusing God. They were messing up with God. They were breaking God's heart. And God says, I love you. In fact, that brokenness is shown so much throughout their history that by the time we come to the book of Hosea, God says, okay, this heartbreak is too much. I want somebody to illustrate the way I'm feeling to these people. And so he calls a prophet called Hosea and he says, go and marry a prostitute. Go and marry somebody that doesn't even care about you. And in Hosea chapter 2, verse, I think it's verse, sorry, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, God says, go and marry a person who will not love you, who will not care about you. And so Hosea marries this prostitute. And everything goes south because she runs away from him. If you've read the book Redeeming Love, a Christian novel, it's one of the best novels ever because it puts that story into graphic, really graphic terms in modern times for us to understand. And so Hosea is abused in this relationship. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and God says, this person that has hated you, this person that has treated you this way, despite the fact that you love them, go again and love this person. She's loved by another person. She loves another person. She's, she's, she's turned away from you. Go again and love this person. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Even though they turn to other gods. Covenant love. And friends, we see this in the life of Jesus. He's the one who is self-sufficient. He didn't need us. We needed him and he came for us. He's the one who was very personal in our difficulty, in our suffering. And he came, you see Jesus weeping. You see Jesus touching people that people didn't want to touch. He was very personal. He was very compassionate. But he was also covenant keeping. Some of you may have heard or um, watched rather the movie, A Beautiful Mind. I think it's one of the best movies ever. It's a story about... um, a professor of economics, John Nash, who would eventually later win the Nobel Prize for economics for his developments of the theory of, of game theory. But what happened was that John Nash actually, at some point, um, he lost his mind. He thought that the um, United States 
had employed him secretly to start decoding patterns in newspapers. And so he will gather all these newspapers and he'll be decoding patterns. And then he'll be seeing people and be interacting with people. And then he will go and be sending secret messages to the US government and say, oh, this is the pattern that I saw. And he was doing all of these things. And then there was somebody, his wife, all throughout that process, who was with him all the way. And the beauty of that story was that actually at some point, he even hurt her because he had lost his mind. Because he saw people that, he, 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 they were, that, were, that were not actually there. He thought the people that he was seeing wasn't his wife. So he was trying to run away from them and not knowing that he hurt his wife. And, but she still stayed. She stayed and helped him through the process. But actually, let me spell that story for you. Because what was later revealed was that actually all the things as beautiful and as true and as great as that movie was and what it showed, all the things that weren't true, she actually didn't stay throughout. She had it so much to one point, she was like, I'm, I'm going. This guy will not take over my life. This, this, this thing will not take over my life. She left him. She walked away. And it wasn't until many, many years later until the early 2000s that they eventually became reconciled and got married again. Guess what? Jesus never left. Jesus never left. He saw our brokenness. He saw that we had wounded him. He saw that we had injured him. He saw that we had rejected him. He saw all of our brokenness, all of our hearts, all of our pain. Not just the one that we did to ourselves, but the ones that we did to others. But Jesus never left. Jesus stayed all the way to the end. He endured the pain and the punishment that was due us. All the things that were supposed to suffer because we had hurt him, because we had abused him. Jesus suffered those things in our stead. He went to the cross for us. He died our death. He comes now in our stead and reconciles us to God. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. This is who you are. I see your brokenness. I see your abuse when I'm not living. I'm staying. If you're not a Christian here, Jesus is inviting you this morning. And he's saying, this is who I am. Come and meet me. But if you're a Christian here, God, as he was speaking to Moses, was also showing us something about how the mission and the identity of God should also affect us. You see, just as Moses encountered God and was transformed by God, so also when we encounter God, it transforms how we do the mission of God and all that he has called us to. If God is self-sufficient, you don't have to be. You don't have, all, you don't have to have everything sort of sorted and all your categories organized neatly. You don't have to have all the answers to the question. God is the self-sufficient one. You are not. He's the one who is, I am that I am, and you are, you are that you are. You are broken. You are messed up. You are flawed. And you need him. He's self-sufficient, and you're not. But you see also, if our God is a personal God, then we also have to be personal people. And part of the problem is that we don't have relationships with people. We don't really enter into the mess and brokenness of people. Part of the reason why evangelism is hard for us is because we drive our own cars. We sit in our own houses, in our 
virtual offices. We have virtual meetings. We actually don't meet people anymore. We don't know anybody. So if I don't know anybody, who is there to actually share the gospel with? But if our God is a personal God, it means we have to have personal relationships. He's self-sufficient, I am not. He's personal, I must be. But if he's a compassionate God, we must also be compassionate people. I remember a few years ago, and I've shared this story with some of you. I was in a bus. I was going from, um, I think it was Obanikoro on Ikorodu Road. And I was going to somewhere along Fadei. And so I boarded this bus, and there was this very evangelistic person on the bus. You know them? That was handing out tracts. It was just giving. Just giving. You must take this thing by force. Just take, take, take. And there was a woman who stopped at a particular bus stop. There was a woman who was trying to get on the bus. She, was, she, was, um, she, she had a, a, a baby on her back. She, it was difficult for her to get on. And everybody was trying to help her onto the bus. But here was this guy. All I just want to do at this time is for you to just take this tract. He missed compassion. And the way that we can be successful, friends, is if we see the brokenness around us, we see the hurt and pain around us, and we say, yes, there is hurt and there is pain, but I'm bringing the compassion, the life, the love, the care of Jesus into this broken situation. If he's the compassionate God, we must be compassionate people. But lastly, if he's the covenant-keeping God, then we must be covenant-keeping people. Yes, we keep covenant to each other, but it also means that we have to have a long rope when people fail, when people mess up, when we see the brokenness, the hurt around us, because the identity of the fearless God was affect the identity of the fearful people. He's self-sufficient, we're not. He's personal, we must be. He's compassionate, we must be. He's covenant-keeping, we must be. But the last thing we see in this passage is the promise of the freeing message. And so in Nigeria, I used to, to scam. And so if, if God answers the question of the fearful ones, and God reveals the identity of himself as the fearless one, it still doesn't mean that the message is going to succeed. And you're right. It doesn't mean the message is going to succeed. But what about if the message possesses the power to actually bring out the success? What about if the message is so potent enough that all you need to do is like a piece, is like a bullet in a gun. All you need to do when you fire a gun, you don't, you don't fire the gun and then remove the bullet and then you start running with it and go and give someone. No, no. All you need to do is just release the bullet. And it's the same thing with the message. The first thing that we see here is that when we go with this message, God promises freedom from idolatry. Freedom from idolatry. When we read verses 16 all the way to 18, what God says is that I'm going to bring the people out of oppression in Egypt and he's going to bring them to the promised land where they will worship me. In other words, when people are bound in idolatry, what happens is that they, they, they pledge their allegiance to something else. They're worshipping something else. There's something else that is possessing and controlling them. And as we saw when we looked at Psalm 24, the thing with idolatry is that it actually keeps us from flourishing. It actually keeps us from becoming and being the people that God has created us to become. And so what God promises is that when you go with this message, I'm going to bring about freedom from idolatry. 
I'm going to turn people who are bent inwards to people who become bent outwards, who can now see God and see reality for who he truly is. You see, God says, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. But I'm going to take them not just out of Egypt. I'm going to bring them to this place where they can worship me. In other words, when God frees us from idolatry, he relocates us. He brings us out of our brokenness and our bondage and our shame. He brings us out of all of those things and he gives us a new place to stand and to set our feet on. Freedom from idolatry. But when we go with this message, the other thing that we see is that deliverance is by God, not by us. Not by our activity. Not by what we are able to cook up. Not by how many hours we have prayed. Yes, that thing is important. Not by how much of Bible that we know. Yes, that is important. But actually, all of deliverance is by God, not by us. And so God says to Moses, yes, I am sending you. But actually, Moses, it is not just that I am sending you. I am going to bring about what I have promised. I will bring about this deliverance. All you need to do is just release the bullets. I will do it myself. But the last thing we also see is that when we go with this message, God promises a restoration of all that has been lost. And so God says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. But actually, no, no, I'm not just taking you out of Egypt. I'm also going to cause that all the things that you guys had lost, all the things that belong to the Egyptians will now belong to you. God says, we are going to plunder the people of Egypt. You're going to take things from them and you take it to this new place where you, you begin to flourish and to live as I have de designed and decided. When we go with the message, the free message of God, what happens? God brings about freedom from idolatry. God brings about deliverance by his power. And God brings about a restoration of all that has been lost. So if you are familiar with the story of the people of Egypt, you see that in chapter 12, when God brings about the freedom, what happens is that these people who were slaves, who didn't have a penny to their name, go and start telling their, their masters, oh yeah, give me that jewelry that I saw that you bought. Give me that thing that I saw that you bought. God brought about the restoration of all that was lost. When God releases them, we see they are standing before the Red Sea and it seems like, man, God, this thing that you promised is not going to come to pass. What happens? God says, stand still and see. I will bring about this salvation that I promised. And God causes the Red Sea to split about. Why? Because it's about him, not about you. It's about his power, not about your strength. It's about what he can do, not about your confidence and all that you know. The message has a promise that God will bring to pass all that he has promised. But you say, yes, that was then. What about now? And that's a good question. Remember, the key is in this. Who am I? I will be with you. And so God actually does that again when we come to the person of Jesus. Remember that passage that we read earlier, John chapter 20. Jesus says, I am sending you. But the good thing about God is that he doesn't just leave us to our devices. He doesn't leave us to our expertise. He doesn't leave us to how well we know the message and how we can cook it up. In verse 22 of John chapter 20, after he has said, I am sending you as the Father has sent me. What does he say? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the missing link between our experience and our possession of the message and all that the message actually is able to accomplish. 
when God releases his Holy Spirit upon us, God empowers those who were dead, those who were weak, those who were broken, those who didn't know anything about God, those who were not able to machinate anything in and of themselves, God enables them to bring about the success of that message. Why? Because now they are filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of us need the Holy Spirit again today? It was that same Holy Spirit, after Peter had heard these words, after Peter had been under this, Peter who denied Christ, Peter who, was, who, 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 who didn't actually have the answer to even answer a common girl, the question that she was asking, Peter is now able to stand on the day of Pentecost before thousands of people and say, because of this that God has done, come and meet him. Why? The Holy Spirit. Friends, that same Holy Spirit is not just a promise for 2,000 years ago. That same Holy Spirit is not just a promise for last year. That same Holy Spirit is not just a promise for the last decade. It is a promise for now. All those who cry out and, and ask for him, Bible says that he will not, he will not, he will not behold the Holy Spirit. All those who ask him. For listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.